So Jedi, we were talking earlier, what, what was the big news today on Brittany Griner? Brittany, she was sentenced to nine and a half years in a Russian jail for drug smuggling. They felt she deliberately smuggled drugs into Russia and also fined her about a million rubles, equivalent to 16,400 US dollars. What do you guys think about that? I think it's a travesty. And it's unfortunate that they're going to let some Russian arms dealer out of jail to get her and some other American citizen on trumped up charges back in exchange. It, it, it's silly. She claims to have accidentally brought cannabis that was prescribed for pain with her. It was about the equivalent of a sliver of gum. One gram, right? Yeah. Again, nothing in most states in, in, in the United States at this point, you certainly wouldn't go to like the gulag for 10 years. Like that, <laughs> that's not in the cards. <laughs> but what do you mean? They're not doing that exchange, right? For the Russian arms dealer. So here's the thing, Todd. Russian courts, a joke. Yeah, I know. They have like a 99% convict rate. So in order for this thing to proceed to a negotiation and some sort of a swap, the Russians insisted because they like to pretend it's all on the up and up that she has to go through the trial and everything before they would even comment on negotiation. So you had to get this charade out of the way. It went how everybody assumed it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Now she's going to disappear for like a month and be sent off to a penal colony. And those are pretty bad. <laughs> so let's see what happens. But this will probably drag on for months. Yeah, what do you think, Jim? Well, I found the whole case uh, rather peculiar. I mean, she herself is very odd. I mean, she seems to me to be like a transgender. Uh, She has no breasts. Uh, She's very tall. She has a voice more mannish than womanly, as I take it. But she did a dumb thing. I mean, Russia has very strict drug laws. And frankly, I wish we were as rigorous in enforcing our laws as they are of theirs, because we're letting millions of migrants come across the border illegally. They're bucking up the demographics of the United States. It's going to be horrendous getting them out if we are ever able to do so. And this is part of a Democrat plot to flood the nation with people they think are going to vote forever after Democrat. I mean, it's just disgusting beyond words. It's going to be that kind of show. <laughs> oh man, we always we always get a roundabout answer, Joe. Joe, I'm surprised. I thought I thought there was a chance that Sandy Hook would be in that answer. So <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Doctor Fetzer, I assume you're following Mr. Jones's trial. They had a little bit of a mishap by handing over evidence they they didn't mean to. That does not bode well for Alex Jones. Oh, all the text messages, uh, right? It's already a done deal, and it wasn't a mistake. This attorney is representing her as a colleague of Eric Holder. Eric Holder ran the shop at Sandy Hook. He went up and met with the governor, told him what they were going to do. He was the key player in setting it up on behalf of the administration. This is a deliberate takedown of Alex. They're going after the whole conspiracy theory community. He deliberately gave two years of Alex text messages to the plaintiff's attorney and when the plaintiff's attorney hey said hey you know you gave me all this stuff he didn't even claim it was confidential and privileged it was deliberate you can stick a fork in alex he's done he is toast this was devastating he'd been stupid the way he handled the thing from the beginning honestly 
I tried to intervene in all of his lawsuits on behalf of pointing out that nobody had established anyone had died at Sandy Hook. I mean, in all these lawsuits involving him, I even submitted an amicus brief in Texas. They never responded positively. They never had the least interest. Both sides were opposing me coming in to ask for proof that anybody had died at Sandy Hook. They didn't want to deal with the issue because the whole thing is a fraud. It's from the beginning to the end. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. And I'm in a position to prove it. So if he'd had the least brain in his head, and we had had some amicable relation way back when, when after I founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth in 2005, Alex had an American Scholars Conference, I'm sure was inspired by the name I'd given to my organization, and he invited me to be the keynote speaker. And when we had the, uh, the, the panel discussion on Sunday, all four of the panelists were from my organization. Steve Jones, my co-chair, I'd made him co-chair. Bob Bauman, who'd been uh, scientific director, Star Wars director for Reagan and Ford. Uh, Webster Tarpley, another member of Scholars, who published 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA. And I, as the founder, where I talked about the top 10 reasons we knew the hijackers were fake. And it was very good. It ran an hour and 45. All right, <laughs> slow down for one second. <laughs> You're great. We got a really, like, amazing show we're going to yeah. do here. Let's not get off uh, too much of a tangent. You're saying it, Alex and I, but he showed no interest. Yeah, no, he's, he's, listen, he admitted that he knows that he was full of crap and that it, it really happened. His producer testified to but, the same. But it, did, but, it, but it didn't happen, Joe. Oh, it did. We've been over this. It definitely happened. Now, listen, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Listen, who do you think knows more about what happened at Sandy Hook? You were people who lived in Sandy Hook. I've been there, and they're all they're all in on it, my friend. No, they're not. Trust me, they're not. They were paid off big bucks. The community was paid big bucks. If you knew some of the people I knew, trust me, you wouldn't think that. There's some dopes down there. Yeah, believe me. But now listen, just because. Hold on, Doctor Fletcher. Listen, just because we don't agree on Sandy Hook. I still 100% think that JFK is a thing. To me, listen, Sandy Hook doesn't prove any of the other ones happened. So jury's still out as far as I'm concerned and all the other ones. But I'm here. Trust me. It happened. <laughs> so before we pick this up on the other side, I have one question for you, Dr. Fetzer. Now, when that bullet came down and you could see his brains go out of his head when his head exploded, JFK, at that moment, does he still have more brains than Biden? <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> no doubt about it jfk with half a brain is more brain than biden I Todd and producer Joe here back with Crimes, Conspiracies and Beyond. Last week, we talked a lot about JFK's assassination and back with us again is Dr. Jim Fetzer for part two. If you don't know who Dr. Jim Fetzer is, he's a retired professor, accomplished author and conspiracy theorist who has researched JFK assassination for over 30 years. Welcome back. Oh, thanks, Jen. I'm just delighted to be with you and 
Todd and Joe again. I've enjoyed our last conversation together, and I'm sure this one as well. I don't think we quite got to the grassy knoll yet, or we're just maybe about to get into that. So do you have more uh, slides for us tonight? Do I have more slides for you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, we, you, can, you can say that, Todd. You could definitely say that. Let's take a look at the witness inconsistencies. Here we have witness after witness describing a blowout at the back of the head. That's Beverly Oliver. She was right there observing. Phil Willis and his wife, Marilyn, were right there on the grassy knoll. Beverly was in the opposite side, actually filming the event. Ed Hossman was on the triple underpass. Doctor after doctor at Parkland. Robert McClellan, Paul Peters, Kenneth Salyer, Charles Carrico, Richard Delaney, Charles Crenshaw, Ronald Jones, even Nurse Aubrey Bell. All reporting a blowout, a fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. Theron Ward, he was a justice of peace. Aubrey Reich, he was an ambulance driver. Frank O'Neill was an FBI agent at Bethesda. And Gerald Custer, Paul O'Connor, and Freud Reby were all medical techs at Bethesda. And when the body first came in, it had a fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. As we shall learn, it didn't remain that size for long. Now, here you have uh, Clint. Hill, who rushed up to protect Jackie, it was Jackie's designated bodyguard, and she, she, he was pushing her back. We actually saw him come up on the back of the limousine in both the Zabruder and the Hicks film. Here you have, even if Clint actually did touch Jackie, which we see in this, oh, well, we don't see it in Zabruder. They don't show him pushing her into the seat, but which he's maintained he did for then 47, now over 50 years. In his formal report of 30 November about the events of 22 November, he said, as I lay over the top of the back seat, I noticed a portion of the president's head on the right rear side was missing and he was bleeding profusely. Part of his brain was gone. I saw part of his skull with hair on it, which is consistent with frame 374, whereas I shown you, we can see the blowout, but not 313 through 316, for example, where it's been blacked out. At least uh, some of the members of the staff had to be aware of the observations of the first person to observe the head wound apart from Jackie herself. And this is fascinating. Even the book, The Kennedy Detail, published in 2010 about the Secret Service in Dallas includes this sentence. And slumped across a seat, President Kennedy lay at moving a bloody gaping fist-sized hole clearly visible in the back of his head an observation of enormous significance in relation to the autopsy photographs and x-rays, as well as the authenticity of the Zapruder film. Now, this is a description that was authorized by Dr. McClellan at Parkland. It was a, a large wound at the back of the head. Charles Crenshaw drew these for me from my book, Assassination Science, published in 1998, a hole at the back of the head and then from the side, so you can see the size of the defect. We actually saw it highlighted by Jackie's glove where we saw the actual wound in frame 374. Now, the mortician who prepared the body for burial, his name was Thomas Evan Robinson, described the wounds, a large gaping hole in the back of the head. He felt it was patched over by stretching a, a piece of rubber, believes it was filled with plaster of Paris. Now, this is very important, a smaller wound in the right temple. This was the entrance wound. And then there was a crescent-shaped skull flap that was attached to the ear. I believe I pointed out before, it was the pink part. Uh, then there were about two small shrapnel wounds in the face that were patched with wax. 
This is extremely interesting. When he began to uh, embalm the body, it began leaking embalming fluid from these tiny little wounds in the face. David Mantic figured it out. Namely, these were caused by tiny shards of glass that hit the face when the bullet passed through the windshield that hit Jack in the throat. Then we had the wound to the back, five to six inches below. As I've described, it's actually five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column. The adrenaline in the brains were removed, other organs removed and put back. Get this sentence. No swelling or discoloration to the face. That means he died instantly. Dr. Berkeley was the family physician. Jack's personal physician came in to ask how much longer and told me to take my time. Now, there's no mention here of the throat wound, which was a small, clean puncture wound described by Malcolm Perry, MD, three times as a wound of entry. But look what, because they obliterated the wound, they, they enlarged it at Parkland to make it look more like a wound of accent. But get this, when the House Commi Select Committee on Assassination reinvestigated the case in 77, 78, the medical panel moved the wound to the back of the head, which was lower down to the very crown of the head, where you can see in the diagram on the right, except there's no corresponding wound on the left, which is a real photograph, meaning they just made it up. And notice you can see that skull flap I was talking about it was beneath the hand above the ear. It was about three inches crescent shape, blown open when he was hit with a frangible or exploding bullet. So we have, remarkably enough, and anyone who wonders if there's anything peculiar about the Kennedy assassination, Here's the wound at Parkland, fist-sized blowout at Bethesda, believe it or not. Commander Humes took a cranial saw to the skull of JFK and enlarged the wound to make it look more like something that might have happened had he been leaning forward by a shot from behind. Now, if you have any doubt if that sounds fantastic, just go to the Bethesda autopsy report. You'll see it described there in mathematical detail. David Lifton was the first to detect this discrepancy in his magnificent book, Best Evidence, where he called a physician of his acquaintance and just read the description of the womb from the Bethesda autopsy report, telling him nothing about who the patient would be to his identity and asked him what it sounded like. And the physician said, it sounded as though he'd been hit in the back of the head with an ax. It was that huge a wound. Well, look at the absurdity. They reinvestigate the case. They reconstitute the back of the head. They move the wound that entered lower in the back of the head. I mean, this is just absurd. It's like the HSCA wanted to redo the whole autopsy and all that to make it come out better. It's insulting, absolutely insulting. Now, here you have physician after physician reporting Sarah Beller as well as cerebral tissue extruding, Marion Jenkins, uh, even to the extent cerebellum was, now you got to realize that cerebellum is a small compact part of the brain at the base. Cerebellum was explained, carico, uh, cerebral and cerebellar tissue, Malcolm Perry, uh, uh, some cerebellum was extruding, McClellan, uh, posterior cerebellar, some of the so, cerebral and some of the cerebellar, Baxter, cerebellum was present, a large quantity of the brain was present on the cart. Camp Clark, who was the director of neurosurgery, cerebral and cerebellar tissue was exposed. Well, none of that's possible if the brain is reconstituted the way the skull is reconstituted the way the HSCA had it. Here, here you see the cerebellum. Here you see the cerebral. 
So it's this compact part of the brain and it's covered by a very tough membrane called the tentorium. Now, Bob Livingston, who is a world authority on the human brain, told me that even the impact of two near simultaneous wounds could not have exposed cerebellum unless a tentorium had previously been ruptured where he believes that happened when the bullet that hit JFK in the throat fragmented and part went down into his lung and the other upward, severing the tentorium. Here you have Limonsum himself now talking about photos and diagrams. You see that at the top. This is supposed to be the brain, but he observes how absurd this is. It simply cannot be true that the cerebellum could have been seen extruding from the occipital parietal wound by several experienced and thoroughly competent physicians and for the same brain to be seen in superior and lateral photographs and depicted in a drawing superior view showing the cerebellum as being apparently intact. A conclusion is obligatorily forced that the photographs and drawings of the brain in the National Archives are though of some brain other than that of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Now I could have reported that, but how nice to have it come from a world authority on the human brain. Meanwhile, we know that Bethesda autopsy photographs are not even the JFK, that's part of the framing. These are photographs that have been published by Robert Groton that he insists are authentic, but are clearly fake. They are clearly fake. Just compare the, the profile now with a body that's not even JFK in the body there. But look at all this gunk on the head. I mean, it's very, very strange. That's uh, someone else's body than that of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And notice the eyes are open. Charles Crenshaw was the last physician to observe the body as it was placed into the bronze ceremony casket, close the eyes of JFK. Look at the nose, the chin. He looks a lot like Jack, but it is not John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Here's from the other side, the left profile. And we even have a gift now. Notice mm -hmm. the difference between JFK and this body who's the subject of these autopsy photographs. It's led some people who are pretty smart, like Miles Mathis, to claim the whole assassination was faked. JFK staged his own death. Frankly, that's just absurd. What he doesn't realize is, yes, there was a lot of fakery, uh, fudging the x-rays and all that but it was really to conceal the true causes of death of the 35th president, not because JFK lived on to sip Mai Tais in Tahiti. And the now, nose about... looks different. The, the nose looked like a different yes. person. Yes, yes, the nose is different too. Absolutely right, very different, good observation. Meanwhile, what about the throat wound? As I mentioned, the bullet passed through the windshield at Parkland, they moved the limo when bystanders noticed there was this through and through hole. One officer even stuck a pencil through it. At Bethesda, they enlarged the wound, just as I was describing. Now there's Malcolm Perry on the right who performed a simple tracheostomy incision and described it three times as a bullet coming at him, a wound of entry. On the left, in glasses there with his arms folded is Camp Clark, the director of neurosurgery. Now Chuck Crenshaw also draw diagram the throat wound for me before and after the tracheostomy incision. You can see it's a small clean puncture wound and a small clean puncture wound with an incision, a very clean incision through the wound. Now here's how they enlarged it. In fact, Bob Livingston was a scientific director of two of the National Institutes of Science, which are located in Bethesda across the street from the Bethesda Naval Hospital. He heard the reports on radio and television of the small clean puncture wound. 
he realized it was a wound of entry based upon his experience with wound ballistics during the Battle of Okinawa. He decided to call over to Bethesda to speak to the officer in charge of the autopsy and was connected with Commander Humes. He explained, Humes explained he'd been paying no attention. He didn't want to be distracted by reports about the body. And, and Livingston explained to him, since it was a small, clean puncture wound in the throat, that the neck had to be dissected very carefully because, and this is so ironic, if any shots had been fired from behind, then they would know there were at least two shooters and therefore a conspiracy, at which point they were interrupted by the FBI. And he thought it was very, very strange that a conversation between two physicians about the autopsy of the President of the United States would be interrupted. Here we have, however, a photograph. The eyes are open. The throat has been altered. The nose is wrong. This is not JFK once again. This sort of thing leads, as I say, even someone as sophisticated as Mild Mathis to draw incorrect conclusions about the death having been faked. Now, here's the single most important photograph taken during the assassination. This is by AP photographer James Ike Alchins. There are a whole lot of fascinating features here. Uh, among them, and we'll do a close up, actually, Jackie has her hand on Jack's hand. He's already holding his throat. He's already been hit in the throat. And in fact, we'll see there's a small white spiral nebula where the bullet passed through the windshield. We'll see a close up. Back here, we have a figure looking out that appears to be or struck a lot of people as like Lee Harvey Oswald. Also, we have this is a window of a broom closet in a rainy mining operation that was a CIA asset. It's framed by the fire escape. Three shots were fired from this window with Amanda Carcano, the only shots that were unsilenced to create the acoustical impression of only three shots having been fired. And then notice, Lyndon Johnson's security is already responding with a window open, but Jack's, they're peering around like they have no idea what's going on. Here's a closer up, but where you can see that small white spiral nebula with a dark hole in the center. Here's the windshield the Secret Service would subsequently present that had a spider-like crack. This was through and through, caused by a shot from the outside passing through. The beveling was on the inside. This was caused by a fragment fired at the windshield from behind to create as though they could fake their way out of it here. Even uh, Doug Weldon, who offered a marvelous contribution in my second book, Murder in Dealey Plaza, even tracked down the, the uh, official at Ford who'd replaced the windshield and confirmed the through and through hole where they were directed to strip down to bare metal and rebuild the limousine, which of course was a destruction of evidence, which could only have been authorized at the level of the director of the FBI or the new president of the United States. Here you can see again where the bullet went through the windshield. This is in frame 225. Uh, re remember now, he didn't mention that wound to the throat, but we see why. Now, they sought to explain when it turned out that a shot had actually missed. They, they were locked in that day to three shots. Well, the FBI and the, and the, and the Secret Service agreed Three shots fired by the sixth floor window of the book depository with three hits. Jack was hit in the back, five and a half inches below the collar to the right of the spinal column, where he was in fact hit. John Connolly was hit in the back, where he was in fact hit. 
and then Jack was hit in the back of the head, killing him. Those shots were all three bona fide shots. But when it turned out that one had missed and injured a distant bystander, now they had to call for all, account for all the wounds on the basis of only two bullets. So they shifted the description of the wound to the back from the uppermost back, which was already an exaggeration to the base of the back of the neck. They claimed it traversed the neck without hitting any bony structures and exited the throat. So now the throat wound has been converted from a wound of entry to a wound of exit. And you notice how the wound had been altered physically in that earlier photograph, even though the body wasn't Jack, they were using it to simulate his body. Well, David Mantic, who's board certified in radiation oncology, which is a treatment of, of cancer using x-ray therapy, took a, 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 a patient with similar chest and neck dimensions and created a CAT scan so he could plot the official trajectory from the location specified by the Warren Commission uh, as the entry and the location specified by the Warren Commission as the exit. And notice it's not even anatomically possible because cervical vertebrae intervene. Meanwhile, and this goes all the way back to 1992 to one of our first conversations where David said he was going into the National Archives with the permission of Burke Marshall. The Kennedy family attorney was a professor emeritus at the Yale School of Law to examine the autopsy evidence. And he told me going in, he thought he'd find evidence of a second shot to the head, but also evidence that the autopsy x-rays had been altered. He found both. What you see on the, this, this is the original x-ray now, which David thought was suspicious because the contrast between light and dark is far greater than in a normal x-ray. It stood out to him like a sore thumb. He discovered a distribution of metallic particles seen on the right from a frangible or exploding bullet that distributed him throughout the brain. So it turns out Jack appears to have been hit four times in the throat from in front, in the back from behind, and twice in the head, once from behind, actually from the triple under, uh, uh, from the Daltex, and once uh, uh, from in front, that's uh, by the, where the fence intersects with the triple underpass, and others just to the right front that he was shot with that bullet in the right temple. And I described where they merged the two shots, a shot to the back of the head where he, he, he slumped forward then Jack eased him back up. He was at the right temple and slumped to the left where they edited it so massively, you now have this violent back and to the left. Now there's some 60 witnesses who reported the limousine actually stopped. Some saw it slow dramatically, others saw it come to a complete stop. The limo slowed dramatically as it came to a complete stop. In indeed, uh, uh, the driver, William Greer, hit the brake so hard that both the Connellys and the Kennedys were thrown forward physically. It was a very abrupt hop. It was such an obvious indication of Secret Service complicity, it had to be removed. Now, uh, John P. Costello, dear colleague, with whom I have uh, edited assassinationresearch.com online with some of the best studies of late of the assassination, compiled a list of witness reports about the assassination. And if you just read the, what the witnesses said happened, you get a better understanding about the assassination than anything you get from the government, including, of course, the Warren report. Some reported seeing it slow dramatically. Others came to a complete stop, which makes sense, since from different positions, different witnesses would have seen it grow slow dramatically as it came to a complete stop. Among them is Tony Foster, 
who was interviewed by Deborah Conway in 2000. As Daniel Gallup has observed, Foster seems to have no idea that her recollections contradict the official record. Tony told Deborah, for some reason, the car stopped. It did stop for seconds. I don't even know why it stopped. Then all of a sudden sped up and it went under the underpass. I could never figure out why the car stopped. The way she delivers these lines, Gallup notes, I doubt Tony had ever seen the excellent Zapruder film and had no idea her recollections contradict the film. He was reminded of David Lifton's early 1971 interviews with the Newmans, who also said the limo had dropped. They were right there on the grassy knoll. They heard bullets whiz over their head. They had no way of knowing at the time the Z film showed no such stop. All of this is to say the earliest recollections of individuals likely to be the most significant, especially if there's evidence of a lack of exposure to contrary points of view that might influence their memory. Here's some more. Billy Lovelady. Remember, Billy was supposed to be the man in the doorway. He actually had said, as I may have already mentioned, that he was two to three inches shorter, 15 to 20 pounds heavier. I couldn't imagine why they were confused, but he was in the doorway near where Lee was standing. I recall that following the shooting, I ran toward the spot where Kennedy Starr had sought. Roy Truly, it was our supervisor in the book depository. The car, I saw the president's car swerve to the left and stop where some were down in this area. Mr. Bellin, who was questioning him, when you saw the president's car seem to stop, how long did it appear to stop, Mr. Truly? It would be hard to say over a second or two, something like that. I didn't see, I just saw it stop. I don't know, I didn't see it start up. Mrs. Earl Campbell, this was the wife of the mayor, who was a brother of Charles Campbell, who was the a deputy director of the CIA whom JFK dismissed in the wake of the Bay of Pigs. She was four cars back. I was aware that the motorcade stopped dead still. There was no question about that. Later, as I told you, the motorcade was stopped. Later, Mr. Hubert, that was when your car, at least, had come to a standstill, Mrs. Cabell. Every car in the motorcade had come to a standstill. Later, we were dead still for a matter of some seconds. Gene Hill and Mary Mormon were there on the grass. They saw the vehicle come to a complete stop. They were in the street at the time. But in the Zapruder film, they are shown still on the grass. So here you see Maury and Jean. Jean Mary is on the right with her, her Polaroid camera. Uh, Jean's on the left. Mary would take the photograph, give them to Jean, coat them with preservative, and put them in her pocket. Now, Noel Twyman, who published this brilliant, really sensational book, Bloody Treason, in the process, did some review of the film. And he asked Roderick Ryan, who is a very significant figure, he'd actually receive Academy Award for his contributions to cinematography in the year 2000. Why was the black ground blurred in frame 302 on the left, but not in frame 303 on the right? And Ryan explained that the camera was panning the limo in 302, but not in 303, where it was stationary. He added then that he'd shown it to his son, also in the film industry, and he agreed it was moving in 302, but standing still in 303. So here you have Mary and Jean, Mary in her dark, Jean in her red coat. They're shown here on the grass, but they were in fact actually in the street. In fact, Jean called out, hey, Mr. Breslin, look over here. We want to take your picture. And Mary stepped in the street to take the photograph. This is a Nick's frame. Although it's blurry, 
it's clear enough to show Mary's head. The lower circle is so far below Jean's that Mary had stepped off the curb before Jean did. Also note, she seemed hunched over to take the photo instead of being upright, as in Zapruder. Here's a photograph she took on the upper left. This is just after the president had been shot in the head. There's a chunk of his skull right there on his shoulder. You can see if you look carefully. Uh, Jack White realized there was a line of sight internal to the Mary Mormon photograph. You can see at the bottom here where David Mantig and I went down with surveying equipment and confirmed Jack's inference that the, the photograph had to have been taken on that line of sight and it placed Mary in the street, as Mary had always insisted, but where apologists for the Zapruder film who want to maintain its authenticity claim was untrue. Others, witnesses, uh, Erwin Schwartz, William Raymond, Rich Della Rosa, Gregory Burnham. I know three of the four who've seen what they refer to as the other film, which appears to have been the Zapruder before it was edited. An associate of Abraham Zapruder, Erwin Schwartz, this is now Noel Twyman, viewed the film in what may have been its original state at Eastman Kodak, where it was developed. Nearly 60 witnesses have reported the limo slowed dramatically or came to a complete stop, as Vince Palomar explained in his chapter in Murder in Dealey Plaza. When Noel asked him about the limo stop, he was vague, could not recall, but when Noel asked him about the effect of the fatal headshot, Schwartz was both specific and graphic. He said he'd seen Kennedy's head suddenly whip around to the left, that he'd seen an explosion of blood and brains from the head, and that it had blown out to the left and rear. Twyman pressed him on this crucial point, but Schwartz was emphatic. It was blown out to the left and rear. This, by the way, discredits the idea that Greer shot Jack, because since Greer does the left front of Jack, if Greer had shot Jack, his brains would have blown out to the right rear, but they were blown out to the left rear. Meanwhile, they make four important observations about the other film, namely that it includes the turn from Houston onto M. Notice I've emphasized that's been taken out. It shows Greer bringing the limousine to an abrupt halt. During the limousine stop, JFK is hit twice in the head, once from behind, and he slumps forward once from the front, and he slumps to the side. Greer watches the whole time, then hits the accelerator after Jax had his brains blown out in Dealey Plaza. Further confirmation of blowout to the left rear comes from Secret Service agents such as Sam Kinney and Vincent Gulo Jr. Vince Palomara, the leading expert on the Secret Service, wrote to Gulo to explain that Kinney had told him of his discovery of a piece of the right rear of the president's skull in the limousine during the flight back to Washington, and that a number of the member of the detail had become nauseated from observing the blood and gore on the limousine trunk. Gulo confirmed Kinney's statements, saying he was totally familiar with the facts as Paul Mello outlined them. Let me mention Sam Kinney. He got a bucket and sponge and began washing the blood out at the Parkland Hospital and discovered a full bullet there in the limousine, which appears to have worked out from that shot to the back. He took it inside and put it on a stretcher. That is the origin of the so-called magic bullet. I'm embarrassed to say that Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited is all about the magic bullet, but he not only does not, even though he interviews David Mantic, he doesn't show Mantic's proof that the magic bullet isn't even anatomically possible 
with regard to his trajectory, but he doesn't know that Sam Kinney actually had found the bullet, that there was nothing magic about it, and it placed mm -hmm. it on a stretcher at Parkland. Meanwhile, it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Dr. Fetzer, uh, like a few slides back when you said um, that was Lee Harvey Oswald, you could see in the building, was that him or people think it might have been him? Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go into that, Todd. And okay. Stand by. You're gonna. You're gonna see the proof. Meanwhile, the motorcycle escort officers. They were interviewed in 1971 by Fred Newcomb, and the the the, the interview was lost until Larry Rivera recovered it, and he very painstakingly translated it, and found these are the four motorcycle escort officers and their their supervisor Stavis Ellis. They, they all reported and confirmed during the limo stop that he was hit at least twice in the head, that Officer Baker is riding to the left rear, dismounted his bike, and ran between the cars to the grassy knoll. Notice that would have been impossible if the cars had been in motion. That Officer Jackson on the right side rode his bike up the grassy knoll until it fell over and then proceeded on foot. That five Secret Service agents got out of the Cadillac, the Secret Service Cadillac, which was colloquially known as a Queen Mary and surrounded the presidential limousine. One took a, a piece of skull away from a little boy and threw it in the back seat. Now this is Baker there in the foreground who is slowing down. This is part from the Knicks, but actually it's a way they reworked it to make it look as though it was continuous. Just to reiterate now what Larry found they testified to Hargis parked his bike and ran between the limos up to the grassy knoll. Jackson motored his bike up the grassy knoll till it fell over. The five surrounded the JFK limo. Here you can actually see the ruts in the in the grass on the grassy knoll from Jackson having motored his bike up the grassy knoll. Here you have Hargis now returning. That's Beverly Oliver there standing, the blonde woman. Then you see Jean and Mary there. This is Hargis returning for his bike long after the limousine is headed off to Parkland. Oklahoma City Times actually caught part of it where they included a motorcycle patrolman rode pell-mell up a railroad embankment, apparently in pursuit of the assassin. Very few Americans are aware. And of course, the government is sought to suppress. Now, this is supposed to be uh, Zapruder himself with his secretary, Marilyn Seitzman. And there are lots of oddities about this because Seisman seemed to be larger than Zapruder. And there are indications such as this diagram by Jack White that maybe Zapruder didn't film the move, the film, take the film that's named after him uh, because here it would have been impossible for him to film through Seisman. And when you notice how the limousine disappears at the bottom, it does appear more consistent with having been taken from a tripod that was located in the pergola rather than by a handheld camera following the limousine. Now, Larry Rivera has two, done two wonderful presentations about the JFK Horseman. This is a title of his book available at moonrockbooks.com where he talks about the limousine stop and the reports of the four motorcycle horsemen, motorcycle escort officers to whom he refers to as the JFK Horseman. So the title of his book is The Four Horsemen very good stuff. Now, Doug Horn, who was also interviewed during this uh, Oliver Stone reprise, knew all about how the film had been replaced at the National Photographic Interpretation Center. Oddly, just as they didn't interview David Mantic about his proof that the magic bullet was anatomically impossible, they didn't interview Doug Horn about how the switch was done. 
where the eight millimeter original already split film developed in Dallas was taken to the National Photographic Interpretation Center on Saturday the 23rd, where they had to have a shop owner open his store to buy an eight millimeter projector so they could view it. Now, what you need to understand is the Zapruder camera uses a 16 millimeter uh, a film, but it shoots down one side called side A, and then you have to take it out and flip it over and shoot the other side called side B. Each side has about 500 frames. So if you were to stake it, split it, and then splice it, you could get a thousand frames in total. Where Sunday then, a 16 millimeter unsplit film developed in Rochester at the secret CIA lab known as Hawkeye Works was brought to the NPIC on Sunday, the 24th, and then used to replace the original. Doug Horn has a five volumes on inside the Assassination Records Review Board, wonderful stuff. It's a bloody shame that in redoing the film, they didn't interview Doug about all of this. Uh, the, the film was used doing optical printing and special effects. They could combine any foreground with any background. They actually combined a different foreground where the spectators were not excited because Jack and Jackie weren't passing by, but it appears taken with the pilot car, and then they added it in. If they had wanted, they could have had JFK doing backflips because of the equipment. It was so sophisticated. So here you see, as I go into great detail in the, my, the third of my three, the great Zapruder film looks, a camera, the 16 millimeter double eight you see in the lower right, and then you split it into two, part A and part B in order to get the total framing the patsy. Lee was in the doorway when the JFK motorcade passed by. They made him remove his Zobra shirt between mug shots. He told Fritz his face had been pasted on someone else's body in the backyard photographs. Indeed, everything Oswald told Fritz has turned out to be true. Now get this, as I was mentioning before, we have these four key parts. You got the a bullet hole in the windshield and the alchins. You got the figure that appears to be Lee Oswald in the doorway. You got the window from which three shots were fired with a man liquor Carcano. You got Linden's Secret Service already responding. So here's the area we're going to look at in greater detail. Already you may feel there's something odd about it. Take a look. After all, where is this figure's left shoulder? It's missing. You got a man behind him, is known as Black Tie Man, who's both in front of him and behind him at the same time, which is an optical impossibility. You got a figure here that appears to have been introduced to obfuscate the shirt this figure was wearing. You got someone here known as Black Hole Man, who's holding his, his hands up to protect his eyes from the sun, but you cannot see his face, and his shirt has been obliterated. Now, believe it or not, Robert Grote and Josiah Thompson insist this, this photograph has not been altered, but I, I'm offering you examples of preposterous features that are obvious indications of alteration. Now, what's interesting about the man here in the doorway is based on his height, his weight, his build, his shirt, and his C-shirt, he looks strikingly like the height, the weight, the build, the shirt, and the C-shirt of Lee Oswald when he was arrested. And indeed, the Dallas police were so aware of the resemblance, they had him take off his overshirt and they did the mugshot only wearing his t-shirt so it wouldn't accent or make it easier to draw the comparison. 
Here's what Larry has done with the facial features to confirm. It was Ralphson K who noticed he's a chiropractor. He deals with people to get their bodies in better shape to wear their clothing that we could identify it was Lee based on the height, the weight, the build, the shirt and the t-shirt. Larry went further and found suitable images of Lee and of Billy Lovelady, whom the government insists was the man in the doorway. And you see on the left, Lee fitting exactly. If you place the pupils of the eyes equidistant in the two photographs with a superposition from the same perspective, then of the same person, all the features fall into place. As you can see, it's the same person. All the features fall into place on the left. Billy Lovelady, however, the ears are wrong. The chin is wrong. The nose is wrong. Clearly, they don't all fall into place. But get this. Yeah, here again is Lee. And you can see even more distinctly how clearly the man in the doorway was indeed Lee Harvey Oswald. And of course, since he was in the doorway when the motorcade passed by, he cannot have been the lone demented shooter. Indeed, he cannot even have been one of the eight shooters we have identified. And here is a man with his hands raised, black hole man. That was Billy Lovelady. It, the features all fit exactly. And it also corresponds to his own description, how he is two to three inches shorter and 15 to 20 pounds heavier, I think actually rather more than Lee Oswald and couldn't understand why they would be confused. In fact, the FBI asked Billy to come in wearing the shirt he'd worn on the day of the assassination on the 29th of February, 1964. And he came in wearing a red and white vertically striped short sleeve shirt. This is why they had to obfuscate the shirt in the photograph. It would have been all too obvious. Billy Lovelady was not the man in the doorway. Meanwhile, just to show you how far the CIA will go, they wanted to insist it was impossible to alter the alchance, even though it wouldn't be published until the following day. So they redid the, the extra issues by some obscure newspapers to put in the alchance. So the real extra for the newspaper, the News Palladium, is on the left. The CIA fake copy is on the right. Ralphs and Kay discovered this in the archives. There were several newspapers for which they did this, so they could produce a fake evidence of the of the of the image of the of, of the newspaper on the right as though it had been published too fast to have been altered. Josiah Thompson still wants to insist that's the case, but it's nonsense. Here you have a backyard photograph. This is one of four backyard photographs showing Lee holding a man liquor carcano, two communist newspapers, the worker and the militant, and the revolver with which he's alleged to have shot Officer JD Ticket. So everyone knew he was at the book depository, therefore he had the opportunity. Here they're showing the motive and the means, but this is all quite nonsense. In fact, we discovered that Roscoe White, who was a, 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 a Dallas police officer who was also tied to the CIA was a body double. Lee had said when he was shown one of these photographs that it was someone else's body with his face pasted on and eventually he knew something about photographs and he'd be able to prove it. Well, he didn't live long enough to prove it, but Jim Mars and I did a co-authored study about it and concluded it was Roscoe White in part, and it was before we had the benefit of Larry's superpositions, in part because Roscoe had, a, had an improperly healed bone on his right wrist. And you can see the improperly healed bone in the backyard photographs. 
here you can see the difference between Roscoe's body, which is far more robust, and Lee's body, which is much more slight. I mean, it was really uh, 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 brazen how they fabricated and framed this man. Here's that bone I'm talking about that wasn't properly healed that Jim and I talked about in our article about the backyard photographs. Meanwhile, now, if you want to understand the assassination, the best way is to break it down between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics. The mechanics were the shooters or supervisors and coordinators who included George Herbert Walker Bush and Edward Lansdale. The sponsors include the CIA. Remember, Jack was threatening to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. The Joint Chiefs threw in. Why? Because Jack had not invaded Cuba, contrary to their unanimous recommendation that he'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviets, contrary to the unanimous opposition, and where he was going to pull all of our forces out of Vietnam by the end of 1964, where they regarded a stand having to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. This was based on the domino theory, which was an absurdity. The Vietnamese were fiercely nationalistic. They would never have succumbed to China's influence. And it would not have been the case that if Vietnam had fallen, so would Cambodia, Laos, Southeast Asia, the Philippines, eventually Australia. We were fed that kind of nonsense. The anti-Castro Cubans were upset with Jack because they believed falsely that he'd betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. It was a CIA who had misled them, but it was convenient to the agency to let them retain their false belief. The mafia may have had some kind of understanding with Joe, their father, but neither Bobby or Jack would have agreed to go easy on the mob if they helped Jack win the election. They claimed they'd make sure Chicago went for Jack and Illinois to guarantee he'd be elected. I think if you count the electoral votes, he won even without Illinois, but they, they, they are supposed to have carried a grudge against Jack. Now it is because he made Bobby attorney general and Bobby cracked down on organized crime. He made more indictments and prosecutions and convictions than ever before in history. Just as J. Edgar had sex dossiers on the member of Congress, the mob had a sex dossier on Edgar including photographs of him in, shall we say, compromising positions with his close personal friend, Deputy Director Clyde Tolson, so that Edward wasn't even able to acknowledge the existence of organized crime. And after the Balachi hearings, when it was described in such detail, it was no longer politically palatable to deny it. The Fed, the Eastern establishment surrounding the Fed, Jack thought it was absurd that a consortium of private banks should earn interest by publishing the currency of the United States when the Department of the Treasury could do just as well with no interest at all. So he had the Department of the Treasury publish U.S. notes, United States notes, which had a red embossed imprint instead of the traditional Fed notes with a green embossed imprint as a young Marine Corps officer. I had one of those in my hand. Uh, I still have one here laminated. Uh, meanwhile, the Texas oilmen were upset because he was threatening to cut the oil depletion allowance. It was a massive tax write-off on the ground that because uh, oil was a finite resource in pumping oil out of the ground, they were putting themselves out of business. And Jack was at loggerheads with David Ben-Gurion, who is a founder of Israel and his first prime minister, 
Ben-Gurion wanted Israel to develop nuclear weapons. Jack opposed it on the ground it would begin a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Ben-Gurion resigned in anger and appears to have designated the Mossad to participate in taking out Jack. But they were only one among eight different shooters. The facilitators who made it all happen were Lyndon Johnson for the assassination and J. Edgar Hoover of the cover-up. When Lyndon ascended to the presidency, he was the one person who could guarantee that no one who participated in the assassination of Jack Kennedy would ever be punished. And while there were six or seven different investigations that were taking place almost immediately, some of which, including in Texas, were making headway when they were all called off and usurped by the Warren Commission, and the FBI was designated as the sole investigative authority so that when they moved the evidence from Dallas to Washington, Edgar made sure certain exchanges were made, such as the Manlicker Carcano found in the death in the book depository was replaced by the Manlicker Carcano that had actually been used in the shooting from the Dow tax, then replaced the handgun that was supposed to have been used to shoot uh, to shoot Officer Tippett. That's a fascinating story in itself. Where Robert Grodin in his book. Uh, the search for Lee Harvey Oswald explains how Officer Tippett was shot four times, three in the torso, once in the right temple, that one of the shots in the torso hit his badge and was deflected, but where there were four shell casings that were discovered by the first officer on the scene, they were all ejected from automatics and he initialed them. They were of two different manufacturers, two were Western cartridge and two were Remington Rand. Uh, a witness, Aquila Quimmins, reported that two, two men had shot Tippett and neither of them resembled Oswald. In fact, Oswald had a revolver. The revolver doesn't automatically eject shell casings. So they made another substitution in the evidence and replaced the automatic shell casings with four revolver shell casings. Only now there were three of one make and one of the other, and they no longer had the initials of the first officer on the scene. Now. This is the result of my research. The shot from the top of the county records building that hit Jack in the back was fired by Harry Weatherford, who was a Dallas deputy sheriff. He was a crack shot. Uh, he was once asked if he shot JFK, and he replied, you little son of a bit, I shoot lots of people. He had a custom-made silencer for a rifle delivered to him a few weeks before the assassination. Now, this was firing the smaller caliber Manlicker Carcano bullet out of a 30-06 using a small plastic collar called a sabot, which may be among the reasons why it only had shallow penetration. From inside the triple underpass, we had Jack Lawrence. He was an Air Force expert. Now, Lawrence went to work for the car dealership that put up the automobiles. And what's fascinating is that although motorcades usually consist of nothing but monotonously black Cadillac limousines, in this exceptional motorcade in Dallas, the, the vehicles were all different makes and colors, and they were provided by the downtown Lincoln Mercury, so the perps would know exactly who was in each of the vehicles. He went to work shortly before. He showed up after the assassination, all muddy and nauseated, because he appears to have made his escape through a sewer system underneath the, the Dealey Plaza. He was firing from inside the triple underpass using a experimental Remington weapon, of which only a few were ever manufactured, one of which was given to Curtis LeMay, the head of the Air Force, and I believe Curtis LeMay gave it to Jack Lawrence to use to shoot Jack, so that Curtis 
uh, Jack Lawrence would know he was acting on behalf of the American government because uh, the chairman of the United of the Air Force had instructed him. And we had three shots followed from that window for a room closet for a uranium mining operation that was a CIA asset. They appear to have been fired by Nestor Tony Escadro, who is an Castro Cuban. Now it's very curious. If you go down to Little Havana, you'll find there's a there's a, a statue to Nestor. Well, the only other statue there is for the Jose Marte, who drove the Spanish out of Cuba to achieve Cuban independence. So it's very peculiar. If you were to ask someone in the know, you know, why in the world Escadro has a statue, they might tell you he took care of business. Meanwhile, you had Roscoe White I've been speaking of. He was the one who was a body double in the backyard photograph. He was tied in to the CIA, began working for the Dallas police force only in September. Remember the assassination occurs just two months later. Afterwards, Roscoe was a busy beaver uh, he appears to have been responsible for murdering some 50 witnesses from D. Lee Plaza, Roscoe White. His son, Ricky, found his diary. Now, that may sound odd for a man to have a diary, but the CIA has its operatives maintain diaries, so they'll know exactly where they were on specific dates and times when they have to fabricate an alibi by putting him somewhere where he was not at the time he was carrying out an operation for the agency. Where Ricky naively gave it to the FBI, and it has never been seen since. Here we have Frank Sturgis. This guy may have been the best marksman in the world at the time. He was at the corner of the triple underpass, and he fired the shot that entered the right temple. A man of my acquaintance, a gold shield detective from New York City, Jim Rothstein, arrested arrested Frank Sturgis when he came to Washington and murdered Marita Lawrence, who'd been a mistress of Fidel who had known a great deal about the assassination to ensure she did not testify to the House Select Committee. She had boxes of evidence. When he arrested her, breaking into her apartment, Rothstein put his gun in Sturgis' mouth and his partner up to his chest. He sat down and gave him the throwaway line, good shooting. And Sturgis admitted he shot JFK and they said he did so because he'd betrayed the Bay of Pigs and because he'd had this dalliance with a a woman who was a spy for East Germany, uh, where the former was false, but the latter was true. Then we have Malcolm Mac Wallace. This was Lyndon Johnson's personal hitman. Mac Wallace murdered a dozen people for Lyndon, including one of his own sisters, because she talked too much. He was firing from the opposite side of the book depository at a man he thought was Ralph Yarborough, was a liberal senator that Lyndon despised, actually is firing at John Connolly by mistake. There'd been a huge argument that morning between LBJ and JFK, where Lyndon wanted to get Connolly out and Yarborough in, but Jack overrode him on the ground that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States. It was too late to get the word out to the shooters. So Mac Wallace fired several shots and hit John Connolly in the mistaken belief it was Rolf Yarborough. But it had the effect of obfuscating the politics of the assassination. So here you see something more like contrast with the three shots from the 6-4 window. In fact, no shots were fired from the 6-4 window. We had that first shot from the top of the county records that hit Jack in the back. He had the shot. Now, this line should actually be moved over here because he was actually inside the triple underpass when he fired the shot that went through the windshield. 
Then you had Greer pulling the limousine to the left into a halt, three shots being fired from the, from the Dow Techs, one of which missed and injured the distant bystander, James Tagg, who was standing down here. Another missed and hit the crumb strip over the windshield, but the third hit the back of JFK's head and he slumped forward. Roscoe White was here, had an easy shot with a handgun, but it would have hit Jackie. They were under strict instruction, Jackie should not be harmed. So he pulled his shot, it wound up in the grass where it was picked up by a Dallas police lieutenant and never seen again. Then we had Sturgis here at the intersection of the picket fence and the triple underpass firing the shot that entered Jack's right temple and blew his brains out of his head. Now, another shooter by the name of Clyde Forshaw was representing Israel. He was in the Pergola area. Oli Domagard has identified him, and I agree with that. The Bronfman family, you know, the big liquor dealers, he was there on behalf of Israel. There was another shooter down here, and he would be the eighth shooter whom we have yet to identify. But I have seen two different photographs of this shooter standing, holding his rifle in the hands of two different experts on JFK. There's no doubt he was there. Perhaps he was representing the Fed. Meanwhile, putting the pieces together, George H.W. Bush and Edward Lansdale were on the ground. Exposing the cover-up narrows the range of possible suspects. Noel Twyman was the first to lay out the dimensions of the plot. It was hatched in Los Angeles in 1960 at the DNC convention. Here you see a photograph. This is from Jesse Curry's JFK assassination file after he retired as chief of police in Dallas. He went to a work for 7-Eleven stores and they published a paperback called Jesse Curry's assassination file. And I believe I was the first to identify this figure as George Herbert Walker Bush standing in front of the book depository here you can see that characteristic slope ahead, the way he dressed, a tie but tie, hands in the pocket. No doubt this was George Herbert Walker Bush. He, by the way, had run the Bay of Pigs operation, which was codenamed Operation Zapata. The Bush family had an oil drigging company called Zapata Oil. If the invasion had been successful, I believe Zapata would have had the concession to drill all over the Caribbean basin as he did when he was a pilot in World War II and named his plane after his wife. Two of the ships involved in the invasion were rechristened one Houston, the other Barbara. Here we have Bush in the Dal Tex. Now this is work by uh, 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 Richard Dunn, just absolutely brilliant stuff, identifying the man in the figure, he's done some colorization. This is Nestor Escadro. This is George Herbert Walker Bush behind him. He was actually arrested. Richard Hook is his name. He was arrested coming out of the Dow Techs and identified himself as an independent Houston oil man. They, they questioned him and then let him go, but a deputy sheriff had observed what had taken place. I think he's got it right. Oddly enough, he brought W along with him. And we have photographs of W looking a bit lost because he can't figure out where his dad was. He'd been taken to the sheriff's office, so he's looking around for his father. The height, weight, build, nose, ear, age, job, walk. Walking toward the building where his dad was arrested minutes before the preppy loafers with the white socks. This was W, present at the scene of the assassination at JFK. Now, a good number of officials with the agency paid their last respects at the corner of Houston and Maine. They included Grayson Litch, Eddie Bayo, 
that was not David Morales of, oh, this fellow looks like David Morales. His actual name is Pushpenny, not Morales, although Morales was a key player and had overall responsibility for the assassination. Tech Chatley, Rip Robertson, Tracy Barnes, all paying their final respects. Here you have now the three tramps. The first is a man named Charles Rogers, whom the third, Chauncey Holt, knew as Richard Montoya. The second is Harrelson. This is the father of the actor Woody Harrelson, who actually served a life term for the assassination of a federal judge with a rifle. Uh, Chauncey, who was working as a contract agent for the CIA, explained to me how he was instructed to prepare 15 sets of Ford Secret Service credentials for use in and around Dealey Plaza. How when he got there, he was supposed to live him in the red pickup truck that was parked in the behind the grassy knoll, a parking lot used by the Dallas police, but the, the pickup truck wasn't there. So he wandered around Dealey Plaza and he told me he saw more mercenaries and hitmen than you'd find at a Soldiers of Fortune convention. He was carrying this paper sack that had a special handmade gun and some communication equipment. They were briefly interrogated and released. They were told after the assassination to go down behind the railroad tracks where they'd find a boxcar that would appear to be locked but would actually be unlocked, and they should climb in and be secure. Well, they climbed in and they found it was loaded with explosives, ammunition, and other weapons. I am convinced that if Lee Oswald had not played out as the as the patsy, they were the fallback patsies, and you have three of them participating in the assassination. What's significant about this photograph is a figure here is walking past them. This is none other than Edward Lansdale himself, who appears to have positioned the shooters and determined the sequence of shots. He was identified by Victor Kulak, a celebrated Marine Corps general, and by L. Fletcher Prouty, who was his subordinate at the Pentagon, where Prouty was sent off to the South Pole on a ceremonial expedition to get him out of the way because Prouty would never have stood for taking out the president of the United States. So we also have a photograph of Lansdale waiting to speak to Bush about the success they just pulled off in taking out the president of the United States. Now, there are those who claim that no one could have kept this secret. Nobody talked, but lots of people talked. Carlos Marcello bragged that Kennedy would be killed, described how it would be done. Santo Traficante bragged Kennedy would be killed. Joseph Milkier claimed he would be killed, how it would be done. Johnny Roselli told Jack Anderson that Ruby was their man who was ordered to silence Oswald. David Atlee Phillips uh, also said before he died, fringe elements of U.S. intel may have been involved. Actually, he himself was involved. Lyndon Johnson, Madeleine Brown, with whom I had over 100 conversations, he implied that a JFK was killed. I'll give you the story there. Marita Lorenz stated in a deposition, Frank Sturgis told her he and a group of Anacaso Cubans had been involved. Sam Giancana allegedly and confessed the entire crime to his brother, who published about it in a book called Double Cross. But others who talked included Chauncey himself, who actually went and did a radio interview, became fairly public about it. Charles Harrelson talked about, claimed he'd shot JFK. That, so far as I can tell, is not true, but he most certainly was there. Jim Hicks was there as a communication guy. We got a photograph of him with an antenna hanging out of his back pocket. Jack Ruby appears to have given the whole story to uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, who unfortunately boasted about it. 
said she was, she had a, a one-on-one interview with Jack Ruby and said she was going to blow the case open. And the next thing we knew, she was dead of a drug overdose. Billy Solastis and other of their up close and personal knew Linton explained what they had determined. Billy Saul in particular was convinced that uh, Cliff Carter, who was Linton's chief executive assistant, and uh, uh, Malcolm Wallace were both involved in the assassination, as indeed there were, they were. Now, if you put this together and you have all these different theories, you know, the mob did it, the Russians did it, the Castro did it. When you look at the evidence and the alteration, the fabrication of the evidence, the KGB could not have extended its reach into Bethesda Naval Hospital to alter x-rays under control of medical officers of the U.S. Navy and agents of the Secret Service. Anti-Castro Cubans could not got a hold of the brain of JFK, substitute another brain. I mean, it just could not have been something they could have done. Nor could the mob or the KGB have got a hold of it as a pruder film to subject it to massive alteration. That required the involvement of medical officers of the Navy, agents of the Secret Service, for whom I have over 15 indications of complicity and hires up. In fact, in Bloody Treason, Noel Twyman lays out uh, the perfect combination with the highest probability of success, a combination of the CIA military with the Secret Service, the Mafia, LBJ and Hoover. With LBJ involved, Hoover could be counted on to rely upon. As I may have mentioned, they were neighbors. Hoover was a godfather to one of Lyndon's daughters. They both hated the Kennedys. Uh, What we're talking about here is the entire investigative and prosecuting capability of the United States government, with a possible exception of Congress, and LBJ then created the Warren Commission to preempt them. So as it notes here, with several different combinations, all LBJ had to do was recruit the CIA who would use the mafias needed in the Secret Service and he had a perfect conspiracy. That was how it played out. So here we have the man who wanted to be president with a man who was president. The whole plot began in Los Angeles in 1960. JFK beat LBJ for the Democrat nomination for the presidency. He offered Stuart Symington, senator from Missouri, uh, that, that to be his running mate as vice president, but gave him overnight to think about it. Bobby went by the Johnson suite to issue a completely pro forma invitation, never imagining that the powerful Senate majority leader would have the least interest. He was astonished. When Lyndon leaped on it, wanted it to run as vice president, claimed if he weren't, he would reveal that JFK had Addison's disease and wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, that he'd had a dalliance with a beautiful woman who was a spy for East Germany, which he'd learned from Edgar. And moreover, if he were not on the ticket, then as the head of the Senate, he'd bottle up any legislative proposals coming from the White House, which would be dead on arrival. Bobby and Jack tried to figure a way around it, but Lyndon had them boxed in and they had to accede to his demand. When one of Lyndon's wealthy backers heard of this development, he burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ would help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and told him what they had in mind. He came out all smiles, saying he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would subsequently declare in public that 
J JFK would not survive his first term and that he would die a violent death. And in the course of events, Lyndon Johnson would send Cliff Carter, his chief administrative aide, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. Here's my fourth book, JFK, Who, How, and Why, Solving the World's Greatest Murder Mystery, available at Moonrock Books. And while Amazon has banned six of my books, they have not banned that. And I want to yeah. thank you guys for this opportunity to review what we have learned on the basis of my collaborative research with the best experts ever study the case. Right. That's impressive, all those slides that you have. How much work must have went into that? Quite a few years. I've been 30 years at it since 1992 and now 2022. I've given hundreds of lectures. I've been flown all around the world to talk about JFK and 9-11. Dr. Fetzer, let me ask you a question. The evidence that you've accumulated, do, do you think, and I know you can't now, but would you theoretically be able to take the evidence you have? Could you prove in court? Do you have that kind of evidence that you could prove something in court if, if you if that were if that were a possibility? Yes. Okay. There's a fellow by the name of Mike Cunningham, actually, who sought to create a Texas Board of Inquiry, which is still permissible under the law to reopen the investigation of the death of JFK. And uh, I support those efforts. And I'd be glad if they were to come to pass. Uh, but yes, it's still a, a viable option. M murder cases don't have any statute of limitations. And here we're talking about the assassination of the president of the United States. Others have looked at the evidence that I've accumulated now in four books and confirmed that this is courtroom ready, that this could be submitted in a court of law and would have evidential significance far beyond necessary to establish what happened here. Wow. So all those witnesses, whatever it was, over 100 witnesses, did they weigh like the people who came forward earlier higher than people who gave what they saw like at a later time? Well, generally, as a rule of thumb, it's true that a witness's earlier testimony is usually more reliable than their later. With Gene Hill and Mary Mormon, by the way, this is a perfect illustration. They were immediately set upon by agents of the FBI. They took them and interrogated them separately. They took the photographs away from them. They asked Gene how many shots she'd heard. She said at least four. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, that's not possible. There were only three. They were uh, securing and interrogating and intimidating other witnesses in Dealey Plaza. The FBI put men at all the photo and film processing labs in Dallas for two weeks following the assassination. They took any photos and films related to Dealey Plaza. They left a little card. There's a, a, in, a, in, a, in a book called Pictures of the Pain, you can find a photograph of the little card they left behind. So this was go going on on a massive scale. Some asked, if they wanted to kill Jack, would it have been simpler, you know, just to kill him at the White House or in the dead of night? And the answer is, of course, it would have been easier to kill him. But everyone would have believed it was a conspiracy. No one would have believed it had been a, a lone, demented gunman. They had to do it in public with a lot of witnesses. But they were in a position where they couldn't control the body. They, they took the body. They seized it. It had to stay by law in Dallas to undergo an inquest. Instead, they stole the body. They put it aboard Air Force One. 
while Lyndon was being sworn in, which was completely unnecessary, but which he falsely claimed Bobby had told him he should do, the casket was left in the back with only one party guarding it. At that point, the body was transferred out of the casket into a body bag and put in a compartment in the plane so that when they arrived at Andrews and the bronze ceremony of casket was being offloaded, Jack's body wasn't in the casket, but being offloaded onto a helicopter. They flew to Walter Reed, where the best pathologists in the military went through the body and removed all the conflicting bullet fragments so it wouldn't be there. They then put the body into a body bag in a pink gray shipping casket of the kind they were using to bring back bodies from Vietnam and transported it in a black ambulance to the back of the morgue at Bethesda. So they were already undergoing the autopsy of JFK when Jackie with a grave Navy ambulance and this massive entourage showed up at the front or Gerald Custer, who is the uh, x-ray technician who actually took all the x-rays, was headed upstairs with x-rays to have them developed in the company of Secret Service and looked out and said, what in the world is going on here? Because here was Jackie coming into the Bethesda when the body was already undergoing autopsy. I mean, I had opportunity to interact with these guys. I spent a fair amount with Custer. I got his, all his report about the radiology officer who was acting that day and how many lies he gave about the autopsy. I mean, it was just riddled with red lines over the a, a version of his testimony of the Warren Commission. I mean, we know one hell of a lot about what actually happened and virtually everything the government has told us about JFK is false and provably false. Big lies, just awful. They should have taken Jeffrey Epstein out this way because no one believes that he was just killed in that jail cell. Right. Like well, the there's same... an illustration, see? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, look, when you got the cameras going out, the, uh, uh, Jeffrey may actually be in Tahiti sipping Mai Tais. Maybe he's back on his island in the Caribbean and uh, with young girls like he yeah. liked yeah. to do. I mean, that was his, his thing, last. So it, it is pretty disgusting. Yeah, I'm just curious as to why was it so important to steal his brain? Well, because the brain would have had bullet fragments, see. I mean, the brain is uh, really important from the point of view of forensic analysis of the cause of death. And half the brain was blown out in Dealey Plaza. As you see, the brain that was shown in the diagrams and photographs wasn't even the brain of JFK. I do believe the disappearance of the brain has an innocuous explanation. However, I believe when they reinterred the body, you know, with mm -hmm. a, the eternal flame, I believe that Admiral Berkeley had Jack's brain, which was in a stainless steel container reinterred with a body. So I believe actually it was buried there at Arlington. Wow. So, um, so where can they find you again, Dr. Fetzer? Where can people find you? Well, I have a new blog now, jameshfetzer.org, jameshfetzer.org. Uh, I have a lot of books at moonrockbooks.com. You can also find a lot of other books I have, including my three original on JFK on amazon.com. So if you go amazon.com, Jim Fetzer, books, bio, you get a bio sketch and all that. And then I have a bit shoot channel, Jim Fetzer, where I have, I don't know, a thousand videos probably now, you know, I'm, I'm doing uh -oh. 10, 10 shows a week and most of them are video and recorded. Uh, and, and I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, the number, I can't estimate the number of videos I've done all together. It might be 
I don't know if it could be several thousand. I don't know yeah. if it could be as high as five, but you know, maybe not, but a lot, a lot. So you can yeah. find a lot of good stuff there. And there's a search bar. So if you wanted, for example, to see my JFK special on the 18th of November that I dedicated Oliver Stone, you can just go to Bitchute Channel Jim Fetzer and put it in the search bar. If you want to see my 9-11 special, which was dedicated to Robert David Steele, just put it in the search bar and you'll get there. If you want to find stuff about Sandy Hook, just put it in the search bar and you'll get there. So, you know, I've done, been doing a lot of this collaborative research bringing together the best experts on each of these cases to sort out what really happened with a great deal of success, may I add. It, you know, it's a method that works, which I have pioneered. So yeah. when I report, I'm reporting the distillation of this collaborative research. It's not one voice speaking. I'm speaking for a group of experts and synthesizing right. our findings. All right, cool. I think we'll probably end up having you back on for 9-11, so I'll keep in touch. <laughs> be my pleasure. Be my pleasure, Todd, Joe, Jedi. I, I really enjoy it. And I'm I'm glad to join you on these occasions. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. My great pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Well, that's it, Mark. The end is here for JFK. Now, I'm not sure about Sandy Hook, but thank you to Dr. Jim Fetzer for coming on again. Check us out, Crimes, Conspiracies, and Beyond. We're on Spotify, Apple, uh, Clovercrest Media, Twitter, and Facebook. Perfect. Adios. Thank you.